Well, good morning. Welcome to Bethany. Uh, glad that the Lord has brought you here to worship with us. Uh, a couple of things I think I'll mention before I jump in on the message this morning. We have uh, some neat things to acknowledge. So I'm going to ask my nephew to stand up. Uh, this is Dane. Everybody say hi, Dane. And seated next to Dane is Tori, who's looking at me right now. Tori, would you stand up? So Tori said yes this week, and they're engaged. Yeah. So congratulations. You can sit now, but you can greet them afterwards and offer your congratulations. And so we're excited with that. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you this morning. We're always glad when God brings new folks. And I'm going to ask, um, we have a couple visitors from down south, so I'm going to ask all of y'all of them. Jeff and Julie, would you walk up here, please, for a minute? <laughs> I didn't warn them about this, so that look that Tori gave me, I just got from Julie, I think. So uh, Jeff and Julie, how, how long ago did you relocate to Texas? We moved to the metropolis of Marion, which has got a thousand people. Um, but just outside of San Antonio, um, the end of April, so April 25th. I just think. a couple of months. Yeah. How's Texas treating you? Um, I'd say it's treating us well. It's hot, very hot, but it's been welcoming. We um, enjoy our church. We said we've learned the difference between coming to church where you feel so comfortable right away and going to a church where you have to be really intentional about meeting people. Um, but it's been good. It's good. Yeah, and how's Connor doing? Give us an update uh, on him. He's juggling a bunch of projects right now, so he, which sometimes take him out of town, uh, and so we are on dog duty then. So <laughs> we take care of his dog and yard when he's gone. But he's doing well, and um, good. it's good to be with him. So the Sunday that you guys left, Marcy and I were out of town, or at least I was. Now I'm trying to remember all these details. But I was gone, so I kind of said a farewell. But you were still here for a week, and that was all weird. And so I wanted to make sure that I took the opportunity to tell the two of you how deeply you are loved and missed. And I know you've already had folks come visit, right? Some Oregonians invade Texas. Yes, I heard that. You all, and that means everybody, if you didn't know that, right? Um, and uh, we are looking forward to that. I, I, it was with some sadness. Um, in fact, I left. Jeff, your picture came down before Julie's did. I left Julie's up a little longer. So these are their deaconess and shepherd photos off of our ministry wall. And I have for each of you, I'm assuming they drink coffee in Texas. And so I got you a Yeti cup with the church's logo. So you can fly the flag for Bethany down south. And people will say, where'd you get that cup? And you can tell them your story. And so I will give those to you. And tell us, why are you here this week? Well, first of all, let me just say, you all, I'm going to cry now, but um, it's such a special place here, and if you, if this isn't your church home, you needs to be, because um, it's a special group of people, and you have a wonderful pastor and staff um, who are not easy to replace. Um, what was the question? Why are you here? Uh, we're here. Why are okay. you here this week? Um, 
They were taking bets on who anyway, would cry, and I'm I pretty know. sure I got most of the votes on that, but thank you. Um, we are here to, um, my folks are making a move as well, um, for those of you who know them, and um, so they are moving down to my brother's place, and so we're here, the deal was, um, He's taking them. We're packing them. Um, so no, anyway, it's good. And uh, so we're here to pack this week um, and get them ready to go. And then they will um, we'll be here one more Sunday. So yes, um, we're looking forward to it. So they're here packing. So if you didn't get a chance to say your hellos or goodbyes, you have this week, but you have to go work, I think, if you want to be able to do that <clears throat> at Clarence and Dorothy's. And Clarence and Dorothy, if you're watching from home, which I assume you are, we love you. God bless you in the new chapter and adventure, moving back to the Bay Area where it was home for so long for them. And we're going to miss you all as uh, you make that time. So let's uh, welcome and thank and love on Jeff and Julie this morning. And I'm going to kill this. TV because it's not cooperating. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, I would uh, like to invite you to open it with me to Esther chapter 9. Uh, today I will do kind of the first half of chapter 9, and then next Sunday is the final message in the book of Esther. Uh, today marks 10 messages through this wonderful piece of ancient literature, uh, a series that I have titled The God of Great Reversals. And the title for this morning's message, the next to the last, is itself called Great Reversals. When I was uh, young, a lifetime ago, I wrestled in high school. How many of you have ever been to like a high school wrestling match? I know Roy has and a few of you. It's not a mainstream sport. It's a sport that for many they watch and they maybe don't understand the strategy and what's happening. And it is a, a unique sport that it helps to have some awareness. For that reason, I love to watch collegiate wrestling, high school wrestling, the NCAA championships every year. I will tune in and watch or the Olympic uh, wrestling events because I understand enough about the sport that I'm riveted throughout. I have been to soccer matches. How many of you are soccer people, right? I don't get it at all. I just don't. I don't understand the strategy. The rules don't make sense to me. It, involves way too much running for any human being to ever have to do. And, you know, wrestling, they lock you in a circle on a mat and say, don't leave, right? And you just compete there. Soccer, you're just out and going. Um, but in the sport of wrestling, there is a move uh, worth two points called a reversal. And a reversal will happen in wrestling where one uh, wrestler who is typically in a bottom position and and a, in a defensive position and a top wrestler, which is an offensive position, a reversal is what happens when they switch. When the guy goes from being on defense to being on offense, from being on the bottom to being on top. And there are great 
reversal moves that can be executed on the mat, which for me are a joy to watch as a former competitor. And I coached uh, 10 years in the middle school, five years here in Salem and five in Idaho before that, coaching middle school wrestling, teaching kids how to compete. I watched all my boys as they took their stab at the sport and wrestled in their younger days. And, and the reversal is an art form that I respect. I was a uh, mediocre athlete in high school. I tried hard. I was a bigger kid. Uh, you know, they, they saw me walking down the hallway and they said, you're big, go to football. And I said, yes. And I, so I played football, not because I loved football, but just because I was big and it was expected. But wrestling ended up being a sport that resonated with me. And I did it from middle school. Mr. Dempsey got me out of after-school detention one day. There was a mockery of justice. And your pastor ended up in after-school detention. And, and um, the teacher walked down. He saw, he's like, what are you doing here? And I said, eh, you'll, it's a long story. It's totally unjust. And he said, listen, you can sit out detention or you can go to wrestling practice for the next hour. What do you want to do? And I said, okay, I'll go. And that's how I got started in wrestling, <clears throat> skipping out on after-school detention. Wrestled uh, through middle school, had some, learned a lot, got some success. Wrestled through high school, had a great coach who was impactful on me. My senior year, I, uh, I wrestled uh, varsity for our high school <clears throat> at 178 pounds. It was a very competitive weight class. So competitive that as we came to the end of the season to prep for postseason wrestling tournaments, my coaches said, Tim, we're going to bump you up to 190. There were three state placers in our vicinity at 178. It was going to be a tough road for me. He moved me up to 190. And in Washington State, they had a series. They had these subregions, and you had to compete in a subregional tournament. And the top five got to advance to regionals. And somehow at 190, I placed fifth at the subregional tournament. And then several subregions came together and formed a new tournament the next weekend, and the top four qualified for the state tournament. As was very common for me, I went one and one in my first two matches. I was going to wrestle my third match against a kid I'd never wrestled before. The winner of that match would wrestle off for the third and fourth place uh, award in the bracket, and both would go to the state tournament uh, for the state of Washington. And so I'm wrestling this kid I'd never wrestled who was a little bigger than me. I was a defensive wrestler. I never scored a ton of points. It, it was boring to watch me wrestle, right? I was like, I may not be able to score a lot of points, but I will give everything I have to make sure you never score on me. And so my matches were always close. And at the end of a two-year, or a two-year, two, it felt like two years, two-minute first period, right? where you're giving your all. At the very end of the period, I took the guy down and delivered him to the mat just as the ref, and I got two-point takedown. And my dad is like, woo, he scored, right? It didn't happen that often. Second round, I was on top, and immediately this bigger guy got a reversal, and I was on the bottom. So now it's two to two. For the rest of that two minutes, now this is what I had in my favor. I could be a rock on the bottom, and nobody would score on me. 
And so we rode that out, went to the third period. This guy now was on top the third period. So for four minutes, he rode on top, and I was in the defensive bottom position. And after about two minutes of leveraging a leg from the bottom position, reaching around, grabbing his leg, and pushing, and working, and breathing hard, and as the six-minute match came to an end, I had just enough leverage that I got a reversal, and I turned that guy back to the mat. I took top. I scored two points. And and the ref blew the whistle, and I won four to two. And the crowd went wild, right? I'm talking about my dad. <laughs> went wild. And for me, it was like, of, of all the things, that was a great match to win. I qualified for the state tournament. I got a per diem from the high school. We had to drive to the other side of Washington to buy food. I got destroyed my first two matches, and I was out of the state tournament. And then I got to eat what I wanted and stay in the hotel with the rest of my friends for the rest of the weekend. And it was a great experience. And so, so there's my claim to fame in athletics. Not much, but... Great reversals all through this series. Every time I've thought of that byline, I've thought, man, this just fits so well. There's something thrilling that happens when there's a turnabout in drama and in a story. And we have seen now so many great reversals in the book of Esther. In fact, Esther is such a masterpiece of literature because of the suspense with which the author has written these stories. And I want you to think with me how much suspense, how many times did a story end in Esther with a cliffhanger where you're wondering, oh, what's going to happen next? At the end of chapter 3, the entire city of Susa is thrown into confusion by the king's edict, which gave permission for the Jews to be destroyed. And as chapter 3 comes to that conclusion, there's that suspense of nobody understands what's going on. When you come to chapter 4, Esther agrees to risk her life by going and seeing the king. And her final message as she's communicating with her guardian, Mordecai, was this. If I perish, I perish. Close curtain. And in suspense. Chapter 5 is full of suspense. When the king asks Esther what her request is, instead of telling him that she is a Jew and pleading for her life, she says, here is my request. Would the king please come to a meal I'm going to throw in his honor? When the king comes back to that meal and asks her again, tell me, wife, what is it that you want? She puts him off for yet another day and another banquet. And then at the end of chapter 5, we read that night about Haman's great plan as he builds a 75-foot stake outside of his house on which he intends to hang Mordecai, his archenemy, the next morning. And then overnight, everything begins to change. Haman is forced to honor Mordecai in the exact way that Haman himself wanted to be honored. Haman ends up that day dying a death in the exact manner which he had planned Mordecai's death. Mordecai is given Haman's position in the kingdom and will write a decree allowing the Jews to defend themselves against Haman's decree. And all of that leads us up to chapter 9. Now, 
we, want, we have to wait and see what will happen now that there are these dual decrees that the Persians can destroy the Jews without, without punishment and take the loot from them. But at the same time, the Jews have been issued a decree that they can defend themselves and they can take the lives of any who attack them and take their possessions. And we're left with this event as finally the fateful day that came by way of Haman's throwing of the dice comes. And the author will begin chapter 9 with these words. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. Do you feel the suspense? It's all about to burst forth. We have waited with anticipation to see what's going to happen. And what we expect is the author to tell us this story in the same way he's been telling the story all along with all the suspense and all of these cliffhangers. We expect suspense to build as he talks about the Jews gathering in their cities to defend themselves. How are they going to do that? Where will they assemble? Will they have a strategy involved? We expect this author to tell us about their enemies and the ways that the Persians rally and come to attack them and what their expectations are. We expect a climactic scene in this book to carry all the drama and suspense that we have grown accustomed to in the previous chapters, but instead, we read this. Verse 1 now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And I want to say this. That's it? Where's the suspense? The, the, the first verse of chapter 9 already tells us how the story ends. There's no suspense. There's no turning of the tale. There's no detailed description. The most climactic day of the entire book is laid out in one verse, and all it says is the reverse occurred, and the Jews took mastery over the Persians. No drama, because the author has already told us in verse 1 how the story will end. It's as if we've learned the final score of the game before the first pitch is thrown. And my question this morning is, why? Why would the author of Esther totally change his tactics as we come to the fateful day at the end of the book and just burst the bubble and let us all know the outcome right out of the starting gates. Because make no mistake, this book has been laced with drama and suspense and last second reversals all throughout. So why would the author choose to take the drama out of the most climactic scene thus far? There, there's more to be told 
The next 18 verses are going to <clears throat> give us the details in full, but the suspense is gone. And there is no real drama. And I will have to say that I think the author has summarized the conclusion so quickly here because of this reason. And I hope that you will mark this. The outcome of this day was never in question. There's no drama because there is no drama. The outcome has been foreordained. The outcome has been promised and prophesied. Will God forget his chosen people and allow them to be utterly destroyed and annihilated and killed? And the answer is no, no way, not gonna happen. That's not the God we serve. Don't even ask. I almost feel like that's the sentiment. I believe the answer is this, that the end has never been in question because God has promised to deliver his people over and over again. Uh, I want to remind you of where we saw this earlier in the story. Notice on the screen, Esther chapter 4 and verse 14, this is Mordecai's impassioned words to Esther, asking her to go to the king and to stand up for her people. And Mordecai said to her, because she was reticent, she was afraid of what would happen. And Mordecai said to her, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. I just want to tell you, that is a statement of faith. That is a statement of declarative conviction of heart. Esther, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The question of whether God would rescue the Jews in Persia, I would submit to you, has never been up for debate and I want to uh, share with you a, a quote from uh, biblical scholar Karen Jobes. She wrote a, a, a very helpful commentary on the book of Esther. And I want you to see how she explains. She says, why, why the downshift? Why the change in suspense? Why does he tell us the end in verse 1? And she says, the motivation for this downshift in style is theological, because Mordecai's decree expressed God's ancient decree of survival for his people and the destruction of their enemies. It was a done deal before the day dawned. The decree, in effect, guaranteed the outcome. The author is showing it is God's decree, his word, that assures the survival of his people. The rest, she says, is just detail but it is important detail because it shows that God's word is truly effective in the outworking of human history. God is capable of doing exactly what he says he will do, even centuries after he says it. This 
episode highlights the powerful efficacy of God's word as it is actualized in history through flawed and even evil people. And I think she's right. (coughs) I think that as we start chapter 9 on this eventful day, and we're told right out of the starting blocks that on this day, the reverse is going to happen, and the Jews will take mastery over the Persians on this day. Let's read, now that we know the end, let's go ahead and, and concentrate on the details. Follow along with me in your Bible as I begin reading at verse 2. <coughs> it says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. What does this detail tell us? That fear is falling on this day. And when we get to see the suspense of which edict is going to take the upper hand, the answer is God has sent down from heaven a fear that is falling on the Persian people so that the Persians are afraid of the Jews. They're afraid to attack them. And all the administrative rulers are afraid of Mordecai, who has risen to be second in command in all of Persia, second only to King Ahasuerus. And the fear of the leader Mordecai and the fear of the people of God fell on the Persians in such a way that for the most part, they were unable, incapable of executing the decree, the permission that they had to put the Jews to death. Notice in verse 5 or in verse 4, It says, For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. This is the hand of God delivering blessing to Mordecai. Starting at verse 5, it says, The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And I want to pause here, and I want to say again, you and I, from our modern uh, conscience and, and sensibilities, we struggle to read something like this. But what we're going to find in this story is that on this day, with the king's edict and the blessing of God coming, the Jews are going to be able to fight back in those places that they were attacked by those who hated them, And they're going to be able to leverage vengeance on their enemies in a human day by putting them to death. This is divine retribution being meted out by the hand of men and women defending themselves. But make no mistake, this is all about the work of God on this day. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 6, in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 5,000. 
hundred men. Fascinating to me that the hatred of the Jews in the very capital city of Persia was so rampant that on the day of the edict, 500 citizens of Susa who hated the Jews were put to death by the Jews. Verse 7 says that it wasn't just an unnamed group of 500, though, because this day, vengeance is going to fall on the sons of Haman. Verse 7 says, and they, all, they, they destroyed 500 men, verse 7, and also killed, and I'm not going to try to, I often try to pronounce the names, but these are Persian names. You just read those names. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. The 10 sons of Haman named by their Persian names. And in verse 10, it says, the 10 sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. What happened in Susa? 500 enemies of the Jews were killed that day, including the 10 living sons of Haman. And again, in our modern sensibilities, we struggle with that. Why would there be an intentional execution of the 10 sons of Haman? But you got to remember, this is ancient Persia. This is another time, another place, another set of norms and values and practices ruled in that day. And at this time, when an enemy who wanted to destroy you lost in battle and was killed, it was very commonplace to kill their sons. We remember the story of uh, the death of King Saul at the end of 1 Samuel and how Saul's sons were killed on that same day and their bodies were displayed on the walls of Beit Shan. We have a group from our church next February who are going to go to Israel. And when you go to Beit Shan and you see the reconstruction of the wall and they have in metal, uh, hammered metal, outlined silhouettes of Saul and his son's bodies hung as it was back in the day because that's how war worked. And when you destroyed an enemy, you also destroyed his sons. Why? Because it it mitigated against retribution. If you killed a king and his sons were alive, chances were they were going to come after you at some point in time. And so it was just very much a tit-for-tat strategy to completely destroy the family of an enemy of the state, particularly when he was a powerful ruler. And that is exactly what we read <clears throat> taking place here these sons, in their death, would serve as an example to the rest of the Persians. Here is what happens when you lift your hand against Queen Esther and her native people, the Jews. I want to continue reading at verse 11. It says, That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall be fulfilled. This just harkens back to this was the king's way of wooing his wife. Tell me your wish. Tell me your request. 
Verse 13, and Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Queen Esther, for some reason, and this has caused Bible scholars to puzzle, what is up with her? Like the victory's been won, why would she want another day for more payback to her enemies? And it's been interesting to me to kind of read the different lines of thinking that biblical scholars have wrestled with this. Some say that she just was bloodthirsty and she's wicked and she didn't really love God and she was out for, you know, as much as she could get. Others say, well, I don't know if it's that so much as this is the capital city. This is where Haman lived. This is where Haman had friends and relatives. If there's going to be a, a, a harboring group of people who hated the Jews anywhere in Susa, particularly after Haman was put to death. It's going to be here. And so perhaps her second day request allowed them to just simply root out more of those who hated the Jews and who were sympathetic to Haman and his, his uh, league and alliance. And they wanted to continue to exact God's, God's justice in the judgment on those who had plotted to destroy them? Whatever the answer is, we know that her ask this day was for a second day of retributions against those who hated the Jews. And then we read this. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Now, this is interesting to me. In verses 7 through 9, the ten Persian names of Haman's sons were written. In, in Hebrew, in the scroll of the book of Esther, in the Hebrew, you know, they write from right to left, and they have different alphabet than we do, and it's, it, it looks very, very Middle Eastern to us to read their writing, and they would write along from right to left, working their way down in prose. But when it comes to the 10 names, it's fascinating just to see the picture on paper because the 10 names are listed line by line, with, with the consonant and. And so it says the 10 sons of, of Haman were hanged. And it's and Parashanda and and this one and and that one. And they stack up in these columns. And again, biblical scholars were like, why, why did the author write the stack of names differently? And I think the most fascinating thing that one of the scholars put forth, they said this, I think that because these 10 sons of Haman and the fate that belied them, that they were going to be put on the end of a gallows, a spear, and their bodies were going to be impaled and stacked up on the spear, that the listing of the names is meant visually to picture what they look like when they were impaled on the spear. All of it part of the lesson of God to his chosen people. I thought that was fascinating to consider that even in the very way that these names were written, there's part of their fate that is being revealed to us. Verse 14 the 10 sons of Haman were hanged, and we would understand that to be impaled. Verse 15, and the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, that is the next day, 
and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on their plunder. So if day one in Susa was 500 enemies of the Jews and day two was 300, now we're up to 800, including the 10 sons of Haman. And now in verse 16, we read about the rest of the provinces. It says, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Three times in the story, we are told that when the Jews exacted the retribution against, remember, this was not offensive. This was only defensive. Only if they were attacked could they fight back. And in each instance, the Jews, while they defended and took the lives of their enemies, they never touched the plunder, even though the edict permitted them to gain financially from the day's dealings. But we are told three times in a row, in verse 10 and in verse 15 and in verse 16, that they laid no hands on the plunder. And now, verse 17 through 19, we'll describe their celebration. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested. Now, this is speaking of all the Jews in Persia other than the citizens of Susa. On the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 18, but the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. And therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And I'm going to stop there because I want to leave the description of the inaugural feast for uh, our final message. And now we'll see if I have better luck waking this TV up. So on the screen here is a uh, depiction, kind of, a, and I know you can't read it, um, but this comes from our friends at the Bible Project. The Bible Project guys are up in Portland, and they have created media resources. And I want to recommend to you this week that you go to the Bible to BibleProject.com and watch the video overview of the Book of Esther. Can I can I give you homework in church? Is that okay? So if I can, there's your homework. I want you to watch the overview of Esther video on BibleProject.com this week. And next week, as we close out the book and review, it'll help to make a lot of sense. And the guys at the Bible Project are, are great Bible teachers, but also gifted graphic artists. And they have created helps to the church in understanding the flow of Scripture. And they've done so in this story. 
And what they've done is given us this overview of the book of Esther. And in kind of a graphic form, they're showing to us chapters 1 and 2. And in chapters 1 and 2, as we've walked through the book, we've been introduced to King Ahasuerus, the greatest world emperor leader of his time, who was throwing these great banquets to show off his palace and show off the splendor and power of his leader. And in that six-month feast that he had for all the representative officers and leaders, followed by a seven-day feast for the citizens of Susa, Ahasuerosh, in one of his drunken states, called for his wife Vashti, who was very attractive. Come and show yourself to my friends. And Vashti got that drunken request from her husband. And like every good wife, she's like, not a chance, buddy. But in Persia, women didn't talk that way to their husbands. And so immediately, there's this uh, uh, crisis of Vashti needs to be deposed from her position, and we need to have a contest. And they come up with this beauty contest where they're going to find young virgin girls from all over the empire. And it's through there that we are introduced to Esther, a Jewish girl, who ends up winning the favor of the servants in the household and winning the beauty contest and is selected to become the next leader. We come to chapter 3 now, and we are introduced to Haman. Haman the Agagite, which is a big-time clue. This guy is a Canaanite. He's from the historic people who have hated the Jews. And Haman is going to rise up in the Persian Empire. And there's going to be a decree that every time Haman walked by, all the citizens must bow and kneel in respect and honor. But, of course, we learn that there was one man who refused to bow, a Jew named Mordecai. And so we read in the next scene in chapter 3 that Haman issues this decree and says, here's what's going to happen. I am going to take it upon myself to make sure that I am not disrespected by Jews ever again. And so he comes up with this plan to issue a decree, and he rolls the dice, the dice which in their language are called the poor, and will give rise to the festival we'll look at next week, Purim, which is celebrated to this day. And they roll the dice, and the 13th of Adar, a, a day about a year in advance, and on that day, Haman... Uh, talks the king into issuing a decree where the king probably isn't in complete composure of his thinking and signs this decree on behalf of Haman where the Jews can be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And that leads us to chapter 4 where now Esther and Mordecai have to figure out what can we do to reverse this decree. And Mordecai says to Esther, you have to go and you have to speak to the king and you have to come on our defense. And at first she was reticent, but eventually she says, okay, I will go. And that leads us to chapter 5, the banquet that she has in the king's honor where she's buttering him up to get what she wants. It'll move from there here to chapter 6 where the story pivots. And now what we see is that Mordecai has everything taken from him and all that he wanted done 
I'm sorry, Haman has everything taken from him and Mordecai has everything that was going to be done to him ends up being done to Haman so that Haman had to lead Mordecai. And you see the, you see the picture on this guy's face? He's not a happy camper this day, right? And he has lost all that he had hoped would take place. Now we see that there is the second banquet that happens that very next day. And in that banquet, she finally tells her, her husband, King Ahasuerus, this is my plea, this is my request, that you spare my life and that you spare my people's life. And the king's like, who would dare to try to take your life and your people's life? And Esther points out Haman, and it's this wicked man, Haman. And of course, we know that immediately after, Haman starts to scramble and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And that leads up to the plan that Esther and Mordecai come up to reverse the decree and they come back. And we saw last week that the decree allowed the Jews to defend themselves. And that leads to Mordecai being elevated and finally to chapters nine and 10. And here's the point. I, I know you can't see the detail, but when you watch it as your homework, you will be able to. Here's the beauty of this drawing. Chapters 1 and 2 directly correspond to chapters 9 and 10. Where in chapters 9 and 10, it is Mordecai's greatness. But as the book began, what we were all introduced to is Ahasuerus' greatness. And we're introduced there to Esther. In fact, what we find is that the king's splendor and feasts and decrees in chapter 1 will correspond to Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees in chapter 10. It's in perfect symmetry. As we move down, we will see that Esther and Mordecai first saved the king in chapter 2, and we will find that in chapter 9, all the Jews are saved in perfect symmetry. What we will find is that Haman's elevation and edicts and, and, um, and his banquets in chapter 3 are reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edicts and decrees in chapter 8. And in the middle of all of them is this great day of pivot where we see that great reversal. And all of this is given to us so that we will understand this one great truth. What does the book of Esther teach you and me? It teaches us this, that God keeps his promises. Somebody say amen. God keeps his promises. God delivers justice. Say amen. There is nothing that happens that he is unaware of and unwilling and incapable of acting on. And in his due time, which doesn't always line up with our timetable, but in God's timing, justice will be dealt out. God rescues. And even like this book has taught us, when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, we have to understand that he is there. He is working behind the scenes. He's bringing about the exact outcomes that he has selected. He did it in this book, and he does it in your life and mine.
God is always there. God is working behind the scenes. When you and I face that time and we say, God, I don't feel you. I don't sense you're here. I feel abandoned. Make no mistake. You're wrong. God is there because he keeps his promises and he is always at work. And we, as the people of faith today, ought to take great solace in this fact. No matter how far it seems that God might be from this situation, I am one moment, one great reversal from seeing that he has been there the whole time. Oh, that we would learn this lesson, church. Oh, that we would fight back with ourselves when we are caused to doubt, when we doubt whether God cares, when we doubt whether God is aware, when we doubt whether he sees and knows and is involved. And may we remember the book of Esther and know this, that God, even when his hand isn't obvious, is always one moment from the great reversal in your situation and mine. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you that there is beauty in this literature that we have been studying. And I thank you that even as we came to the end, you chose not to make this ninth chapter a suspenseful chapter. You told us right from the beginning what was happening, that on this day, the reverse happened and the Jews gained mastery over their enemies. God, I pray for those of us, your children of faith today, who need to be reminded that the reverse can happen in us too and that we are one step away from having mastery over that which would destroy us. I pray that you would give us faith in you, Lord. It's in the name of your son I pray and all God's people said, amen.